Welcome to the Alpha Academy podcast. We're holding today's bonus episode in support of Sexual Abuse and Violence Awareness Week. In particular, we're going to be discussing child abuse in relation to the Let's Talk About It campaign, driven by Stop It Now, Wales. Stop It Now work across Wales to prevent child sexual abuse by working with professionals, including local authorities, safeguarding boards, police, the Welsh Government and other agencies. I'm lucky enough to be joined by Bethan Kelly. Bethan works for Bernardo's and has an extensive background in early trauma, child sexual abuse and exploitation. Welcome, Bethan. It's lovely to have you with us here to discuss what can be an uncomfortable topic. But obviously, it's an important part of information sharing and actually starting that conversation is how we can, as professionals, learn to do more to safeguard children and young people. So firstly, would you like to introduce yourself and in your own words and give us more of an overview of your experience and what your job entails? So my name is Bethan Kelly. I'm the National Programme Development Manager for Child Sexual Abuse and Exploitation in Bernardo's. So my role is working within one of the three core priority programmes for Bernardo's in relation to child sexual abuse and exploitation. So that covers work internally with our Bernardo services but then also externally and also managing strategic partnerships with local authorities. I think it's really important that we have these kind of campaigns like the the Stop It Now Wales campaign that you've mentioned, because it, it really does put such topics back on people's radar and just really promotes that safeguarding is everyone's responsibility. Absolutely. In order for us all to take on that responsibility, we need to first have a firm understanding of the term child sexual abuse and what that means and what it covers. So could you go into that in greater detail for me? Okay, so child sexual abuse or CSA as it is also um, known involves forcing or enticing the child to take part in some form of sexual activity. So that can be whether or not that child is aware of what is happening as well. So that might include activities such as involving children in looking at or the production of sexual images, watching sexual activities, encouraging children to behave in a sexually inappropriate way or grooming a child for abuse. So given the scope of that term, most of our listeners, just for a bit of background for you, most of our listeners and audience are involved in healthcare with an interest in health prevention. So how do we respond as practitioners to any concerns that we may have of child sexual abuse? I think first and foremost, anything relating to child sexual abuse, everybody has a responsibility to safeguard any person or professional who has an interaction with a child or in a child's life has some form of safeguarding responsibility but it's 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 knowing what to do with that information isn't it so always sharing any disclosure of harm that a child or maybe a, a family or another professional or practitioner has made with the local children's services with safeguard responsibility for that child that's that's what is always done in the first instance but beyond that where maybe there hasn't been um, a disclosure but as a professional work in the field where you make contact with children it's it's having that knowledge how you would respond but also developing that knowledge and and building partnerships with those specialist services who are experiencing recognizing responders to child sexual abuse because what we know is no one service can do all of that alone or hold all responsibility for the identifying, safeguarding and responding 
in relation to child sex abuse. So really what I'm saying is the partnerships are key in that area. So while there'll be specialist services to respond to any disclosures and support a child, it's as a professional in that health kind of environment, knowing what to look out for, but also staying professionally curious and always making sure that we we ask those questions and we don't ever leave an interaction saying, oh, well, that didn't sit right. Oh, well, next time I might do this. It's okay. Well, if that didn't feel right, why was that? Is there something that I can do with that now? Is there somebody else I should share those concerns with? So what would you suggest for professionals who would like to feel more confident in identifying the signs and or indicators of a child's sexual abuse? I would say uh, for any professional who is saying that they would like to feel a bit more confident in identifying those, those signs and indicators, it's all about developing that knowledge and, like I said, asking those extra questions. So knowing that it's not a tick box kind of exercise when we're considering child sexual abuse, like, okay, can I just give you this flowchart and then decide whether... We need to really recognise that as children, the signs indicators aren't always physical. Sometimes they might be emotional and behavioural, but actually a mixture of, of all three. So you may see a multitude of emotional, behavioural and physical signs of abuse. And then also in turn, there may be some signs from those who may be harming the child. If, if that's like maybe potentially an intrafamilial situation where um, it, it's maybe a parent or a family member who may also come in contact with that health professional. So it's, it's just making sure that, that we're always remaining professionally curious. We're asking those extra questions. We're, we're being observant. A lot of the work that we've been doing in Bernardo's is research shows that there's less than one in three children who've been sexually abused by an adult has told anybody at the time it happens. So what we need to be, be doing is looking at what those barriers are and how we can remove them for those for those children and young people. But then if we're looking at that in, in even more detail, there's also a lot of more specific vulnerable groups of children and young people who are even less likely to report. So that is children under the age of 10, for example. We have, we have a lot of research to say children under the age of 10 don't have the language or understanding to talk through what's happened to them and, and go to an adult and ask for help. It's not until they're a bit older when their social circles kind of widen that they might actually not know what's happening is kind of wrong or shouldn't be happening and then maybe that's when they'll start to tell people. There's also a lot of research into other vulnerable groups such as children from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds, children with speech and language difficulties or learning difficulties. So like I said, it's all about identifying those potential barriers and how we as professionals can, can ensure that they're as limited as possible and that, that children have the opportunity to disclose any harm, but that we're in the best position as professionals to respond to that and know how to respond to that, whether that is, like I said, purely passing those concerns on to the relevant safeguarding children's services or whether that be looking at those specialist support services as well. But really having that aware on a localised and national level of, of what support is available to children and their families. Yeah, and that support is absolutely crucial, isn't it? Not only for the present well-being and safeguarding of the child, but also 
the secondary impact these adverse experiences have on others, be it family networks, i.e. corruption of entire family relationships due to guilt from potentially seeing and not acting, ignoring indicators, anger, for example, from siblings who may not have the understanding and a turn to victim blaming, but also the direct impact child sexual abuse has on that child in later life. Beth, and before this meeting, I read an American report from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, which shows that children who experience six or more traumatic events in their childhood, events that could include emotional, physical, sexual abuse, or household dysfunction, have an average lifespan 19 years shorter than those of their counterparts who don't suffer that degree of childhood trauma. That statistic to me was harrowing. Yeah, there's a lot of research going on at the minute and there has been over, you know, a really prolonged period of time. But we've recently had the ICSA report where there's a lot about that kind of longer term impact and response to, to to traumatic events and how those long term trauma responses have manifested or are still impacting on multiple aspects of, of people's adult life. So we know from research that early experiences can greatly affect how a child or a young person develops. But that's both emotionally and physically. There's significant research, like I said, around the impact of trauma and how trauma responses develop into adulthood relating to things like poor mental health, addiction, possible re-victimization, ability to build positive relationships in and healthy relationships in adulthood. It's it's about going further and looking at in terms of health, there's even more of a significant kind of long-term impact as well. There's a book that I remember reading called The Body Keeps the Score, and that really started my rabbit hole journey around the term that was used at the time with adverse childhood experiences, which is something that's still used, but there's, there's critics either side of whether that is or isn't appropriate to use. But, but basically, in a nutshell, it talks about the long-term impact from exposure of abuse and violence and that regular kind of exposure to those feelings of fight or flight and that constant sense of danger and what that, that can do. So the science of it, I suppose, is that, that those feelings generate the like continuous secretion of stress hormones. So having those that constant kind of flow of stress hormones then negatively impacts on things like your immune system and your brain function and the functioning of your organs. So there's a real correlation there between the emotional and physical harm that you experience as a child and that ongoing fear and, and the kind of those trauma responses and how they can then impact long term on, on your life expectancy or on your health in, in all different aspects. Because when we think about childhood abuse, we think of, okay, mental health issues and depression and, and possibly substance misuse. But it's actually it's so much wider than that and it and it really can impact every aspect of, of, of your life in an, in adulthood. So that's why that early intervention and that investment in resources and support for children and young people at the earliest point is key. It's about investing in children and, and making that support available to ensure that we're creating the foundations for healthy 30, 40, 50 year olds 
by making sure that that support is there when it's needed and that continuous harm doesn't happen. Yeah, it's such a huge, huge topic and it would be impossible for us to cover every corner of it right now. But are there any resources that you would recommend for professionals to further explore this topic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could talk to you all day about all the different parts of and, and components to child sexual abuse that, that professionals in, you know, any sector need to know. So it is about kind of identifying those those good resources for yourself. Bernardo's hosts the SA Centre of Expertise. They're funded completely by the Home Office, but hosted by Bernardo's and their role is to stay up to date in any research and develop resources for professionals and families in relation to child sexual abuse. So I would really recommend going to their website and, and having a look at the different kind of toolkits, literature reviews, research studies and resources that they have. We also have a document which I'll send you to be able to forward throughout your network called Language Matters. When we were talking about that early intervention, one of the things that's really key within that is having the right language and using the correct language. So we have created a document this year, which we will edit every year because as we know, language is something that changes, words kind of come in and out of use. We have that document and and how and that's a guide for any professional wanting to learn more about child sexual abuse and exploitation in practice and the impact of language on young people. So as well as the correct terminology in there, what we also do within that document is make sure that the language we're promoting adopts a children's rights approach, encourages abuse and exploitation to be viewed through a safeguarding lens and encourages a child protection response, but also avoids victim blaming. That's a really big thing. And leading on to that, what also I think is a real benefit for health and it's a topic that I've attended a public health seminar to do a discussion on was what we write about children. So when you're writing kind of case notes or kind of writing up meetings and interactions, it's a language that we use. So any assessments, letters, meeting minutes, reports, ensure that we always consider when we're writing them, how would we feel reading this about ourselves or about our own children? Yeah. So there's been a lot of the work that we do as Bernardo's alongside care experience young people, whether they're in care or care leavers. They talk about getting their files at certain kind of key points and maybe at 18 and how they've been spoken about and, and what's been written about them and what, what that impact has been for them reading that back we always say you know when you're writing that think about the child and think about that one day they might read this and how they might feel reading that about them and so that's that's one thing i would say as well another thing that i would recommend campaign that we did a couple of years ago called finding the silence which was specifically around children under 10 who have not yet disclosed forms of, of child sexual abuse and how we can create safe spaces for them to do that, whether that be as professionals or as family members as well. So that would also, I think, be good. But I would, again, as well, recommend the book, The Body Keeps the Score as well. Perfect. What I'll do is I will list all of these recommendations in the bio for the episode. We'll also put a link to all of this on our social media. Well, I will let you get on with your day. Thank you so, so much for this brief conversation about child sexual abuse. I know it can go so much wider. 
But it's been really, really interesting just to have you on and thank you for taking the time to meet with me today. No problem. You're very welcome. As, as a kind of final thought to leave you with, just, you know, child sexual abuse isn't one thing. It's, there's multiple harms under under kind of that umbrella in the home. It's outside the home. It's online. So, you know, there's so many different aspects that we need to consider. And just remember to stay professionally curious and always ask those questions and, and keep that kind of open mind and that awareness of potential harms that are out there. For regular updates on the Alpha Academy, including upcoming workshops and courses, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook at Alpha Academy. Or visit our website www.banger.ac.uk forward slash Alpha Academy. That's banger.ac.uk forward slash Alpha C-A-D-E-M-Y.